Hi, everybody. Alan Arnett here with another podcast on the blog on alanarnett.com for Everest. 2022 is May 1st, 2022. Happy May Day, everybody, if you celebrate that day. Happy spring as we enter into spring. It's beautiful here in Colorado, and we're going to talk about beautiful Nepal and other mountains over in the Himalayan areas. So May 1st is a pretty important day when it comes down to Everest because that's the day is kind of halfway between, you know, people arriving and people leaving. So by this point, a lot of people in the mountain have now acclimatized. Uh, mostly people have gone to Camp 2 at around 21,500 feet. They slept several nights. A handful of people have gone up to Camp 3 at around 23,500 feet, about 7,000 meters, and slept a, just a horrible night up there. One person said, I slept at Camp 1, Camp 2, and spent a horrible night at Camp 3, which is about right. Because, you know, getting up that Lhotse face the first time, it really tests everything that you've ever trained for. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people have done it now and either slept there or tagged there. There's still people back at base camp that, uh, believe it or not, have not even started their rotations. But typically, these are people that pre-acclimatized in altitude tents, or maybe they, they acclimatized on another mountain, another 6,000-meter mountain, including like Amitabhlam or Island Peak or Lobache, uh, and spent more time trekking than they did at base camp. So they're going to come in and more or less do one quick rotation to camp two, and then back down the base camp, wait for that infamous weather window and again as we all know by now that's when there's about a week forecast of winds under 30 miles an hour 50 um, kilograms kilometers per hour and uh and that's hopefully for two or three days so they can get to the south coal hit the summit come back down and get back down to base camp so that's kind of what we're on weather watch. We're going to begin to do that now, weather watch. And that's going to become the big topic of uh, conversation, I'm sure, in the dining tents. And the other big picture uh, comment is going to happen is when will the ropes reach the summit? I mean, this is all, this is something, it's an annual guessing game. You know, I think we should start a lottery on this for when they're going to start. And whoever wins it gets a, uh, a free yak or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, we could, I'm sure we could come up with something better than that. Don't you think so, gang? Anyway, so when will the ropes hit the summit? So right now they're they're already at the South Coal, which is fantastic because that now will allow the Sherpas to go up again to establish camps at the South Coal. They're going to ferry tents and stoves and fuel oxygen canisters, um, you know, some spare gear up there and just uh, cache it. Uh, until the, the members begin to climb there later on this month. But in terms of getting those ropes to the summit, there's a rope summit team, and they've been working hard to get the ropes from above Camp 2. You know, this year it was fantastic. The Nepal government allowed helicopters to carry the gear up to Camp 2, uh, the ropes, the pitons, the ice axes, um, you know, the, the ice, the snow bars, everything. And so that way it eliminated having the Sherpas carrying that on their backs through the through the ice fall, which has been done for, you know, for decades, really. Uh, uh, so kudos to the Nepal government and also kudos to the helicopter pilots of like Simone Moreau. He was one of them. He did 11 um, uh, uh, flights back and forth to the South Coal. Not only did they drop off the ropes, but they also picked up a lot of trash that was left there from the 2015 earthquake. So good on everybody for everything that you're doing to try to get the mountain cleaner. So back to the ropes, though. I went back and looked for the last 11 years to see when the ropes uh, typically got in. And, you know, it's kind of, it goes really between May 5th and May 18th was the latest. The earliest in that 11-year time frame was back in 2010 on May 5th. The latest was only two years later on uh, 2012, May 18th. 
So the rest of the days were, you know, 7, 14th, 13th, 15th, 11th, um, 10th, 18th, and 13th. So, you know, May 10th, that's about right. You know, uh, a lot of people were speculating, uh, you know, based upon the ropes, the icefall doctors getting the ropes in early that we might see the ropes in by May 1st to the summit. Obviously, that didn't happen. Not really clear on why the progress wasn't made above Camp 2, other than maybe they were waiting for the helicopters to be able to get the gear up. And that is a well-worthy trade-off. Absolutely. You know, looking at some of the updates coming in from some of the climbers um, on the mountain, Pete Athens gave us a report on those uh, Nat Geo Rolex uh, weather stations. He said that they have now done some basic maintenance on the weather stations uh, at uh, Camp 1 and Camp 2. So that'll be fun to start seeing those come back online. Uh, he said they were acclimatized also. Um, I'm sorry, they did uh, maintenance on the stations at base camp and Camp 2, but they were acclimatized by climbing already to Camp 1 and Camp 2. So um, it'll be interesting to watch and see if they uh, do anything higher than that. I know there's a station up on the balcony that they'd like to take a look at as well. Um, you know, I always enjoy reading uh, individual reports. This one from Devin Gala, and he talks about his experience thus far, and I think he just paints a really really vivid picture. Let me just read one uh, short paragraph from it. He says, looking at, looking at the climbing Sherpas, lo uh, ferrying loads and, and through the Kumbu is absolutely insane and jaw-dropping. We're now looking forward to a much-needed rest and recovery, planning to hike down to Debochet at 12,000 feet from base camp and get some fresh oxygen. Then hike back up after a few days and prep ourselves for the first summit push, which might happen after a couple of weeks, depending upon weather window and rope fixing. Yeah, you know, a lot of people go back down Valley now, and um, the, the famous great late uh, climber Anatoly Bukharov, he coined the phrase touching grass, and he always said touch grass before going to the summit, and on most of his, his big 8,000 meter climbs, including Everest, he would always go back down to at least tree line or someplace uh, where he could enjoy the fresh, rich, oxygen rich uh, air and you know have some uh, different food than what they have at base camp you know sleep in different beds than what you do in your tents there so a lot of people will be going down um, there's a new phenomenon in the last handful of years where people will now take helicopters all the way back down to Kathmandu and you know sleep in the, in the five-star Hyatt hotel or the Yakin Yeti um, you know and then they'll fly back up uh, I just saw one report in fact one gentleman from India sent me a message that they've completed their rotation and so one of their Indian members is a physician and he's going to go, he's going to fly, take a helicopter back to India and spend a few days and then come back. Uh, you know, acclimatization and you can lose it as easy, as hard as it takes you to gain it. I've always kind of used the rule of thumb. It takes you about as long to lose it as it does to, um, to get it. So I'm not sure going all the way back down to the lowlands. I'm not sure where he's going in India. It's such a great idea. Um, you know, I'm not even sure going back down like the Namchi uh, is a great idea because then you get um, back potentially uh, exposed to more viruses and, and bugs and bacteria from uh, trekkers and people just enjoying themselves in those lower villages because you've been pretty isolated in your tent, in your camp within, within your team for like the last three weeks now. Um, and I just don't think it's worth the risk. I understand the gain of, you know, kind of getting some good night's sleep, some different food, uh, breathing oxygen rich air, but you know, it's a trade-off and everybody has a different, uh, a different perspective on that. 
talking about different perspectives. Oh my gosh, uh, going through the ice fall this year. You know, I, I've heard all the way from four to eight ladders. Um, and I've heard all of people say that it's fast and it's easier this year, it's more direct. And then all of a sudden I read this report uh, from Alex Abernoff of Seven Summits Club. And um, let me just read you what he said. He said, you know, today our team went up to camp one in order to acclimatize. The path through the ice fall that is, is really difficult and dangerous. Uh, the first ones arrived in 11 hours, the second in 13 hours, and the last team wandered in 17 hours later. The ice fall has changed a lot this year, a very difficult move, especially for people who see an ice jungle for the first time. You know, 11, 13, 17 hours is a long time. It's a long time physically for anybody, but going through the ice fall taking that long is really a challenge to recover from. And that's gonna be their biggest challenge because I've seen other people say they made it through in five hours. So this is almost, uh, in some cases, three times as long. And it certainly does take a toll on the body. You know, another thing happening right now is kind of watching the weather. I mentioned that earlier, the weather window. Uh, there's supposed to be some, yeah, some high winds, some snow moving in on Everest over the next couple of days. In fact, uh, Garrett Madison made a point that uh, he said it's been snowing and foggy, foggy right now. Um, he said, uh, so they're going to have to kind of wait it out, but everybody's doing fine. Uh, I'm going to talk to a couple of people, three people actually next week. I'm going to do a really interesting podcast with them. I'm going to do it with uh, Michael Fagan, long, long time uh, weather forecaster of Everest Weather. Chris Tomer of Tomer Weather Solutions. Good friend Chris lives here in Colorado. He's also been forecasting weather on uh, 8,000 meter mountains in Everest for a number of years. And also Mark DeKeeser of Weather for Expeditions. Mark, uh, he's a pilot in Belgium. He uh, cut his teeth uh, forecasting weather in the Antarctic. And also he's been doing uh, Himalayan forecasting now for a number of years. So I'm gonna get all three of those together and I'll see if I can't pick their brain and see who can uh, come up with the, the closest day for the first, uh, first member summit based upon the weather forecast. So it should be a lot of fun. I'm gonna do that on Tuesday. That'll be May 3rd. So I think that'd be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, you know, looking at the other 8,000 meter mountains, the Annapurna, uh, there were 30 people that summited last week. They were uh, basically split evenly between members and, uh, and support Sherpas. Uh, there also, um, there was some, some difficult times on Annapurna. Uh, a couple of climbers got up there and an Italian climber and a, Swed a Swedish climber. I'm not going to dare pronounce their names. Uh, Corona and Tim, that's the first name and the last name. Anyway, uh, they um, yeah, they lost radio contact. They were climbing without supplemental oxygen, no support in so-called alpine style. Uh, they kept falling in and out of radio contact with their base camp resources. Helicopter was dispatched once and they turned it down, but then they uh, it came again. They picked them up. They both came down with some pretty severe frostbite. So Good, good for them that they, uh, that they were able to survive and um, had the wisdom to go ahead and take a rescue when it was needed. Uh, pictures are pretty, are pretty stunning. There seems to be some secrecy going on about what happened exactly up there. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of rumors, a lot of conflicting information, very confusing. Likewise, over on Kanjichunga, um, boy, a lot of stuff happened last week. It looks like that Ming Maji, after having a nice uh, experience over on Annapurna, 
Um, his team made it a, an attempt to get to the top. Apparently, they hit just all sorts of difficulties with you know snow, difficulty with route finding. Dalek, uh, Canyon Chung is a very complicated mountain. It has multiple um, four summits. It's got multiple gullies leading to the summit. It's been notorious in the last few years to uh, for people to get up and perhaps uh, take a wrong gully. Same thing happens over on Dalagiri. Uh, so, you know, just getting to the top of these mountains is not a cakewalk by any stretch of the imagination. A lot of people are trying to do Annapurna, Dalagiri, and Kanjichunga, either all three of them or both of them. You know, we've talked about a lot about there's a whole set of female climbers trying to break records by doing all 14, 8,000 meters in six months or trying to do it the fastest or being the youngest. So, <clears throat> but it just goes to show you how difficult these mountains are to climb. And frankly, you know, when you get, you know, you get a lot of people summing to them, you know, a lot of things went right in order to make that happen. So, you know, hands off or hats off to the, you know, to the Sherpas that work so hard, you know, to protect the climbers and hats off to the individual climbers, someone like a Marco, who's pretty much doing it on his own or a Wilco trying to do it on his own as well, uh, you know, we're a small team. So, you know, good on them, uh, climb safe. And also, you know, our, our two Pakistani uh, climbers, they're also on, uh, on King right now. They're trying to get up to the top as well. Uh, over on Makalu, uh, Kerry Kobler's got a team over there. Uh, they're doing really well. They trekked into base camp, proud of them for trekking, not taking a helicopter. You know how old school I am. <laughs> Adrian Bollinger, uh, he's uh, done pretty well. He's had a couple of rotations. He's still trying to ski, keeps carrying his skis all around the place. And I'm pretty sure that he's going to have a, um, a good trip up to the top along with uh, two or three of his other teammates. They've got a small team as well. Um, that kind of wraps it up. You know, just one more thing news-wise on Everest. It looks like that the permits have flattened out now. Last update was a few days ago from the Ministry of Tourism. 316 uh, permits were issued to foreigners. That compares to 408. So roughly 100 less than last year. Again, that's about to, it's about expected. Uh, the number of people are coming from literally all over the world. I think there's 74 countries that have a climber on Everest this year. There are 37 countries that only have one or two climbers. One thing I've noticed this year in terms of the number of permits that um, there's a lot, a lot of permits being, being given for so-called small teams, one, two, three-person teams. You've got the big giant ones like 8K Expeditions, Pimba Sherpa, or Seven Summits Treks, uh, International Mountain Guide, Climbing the Seven Summits. You know, those four will have anywhere from 25 to 75 climbers on their teams. And, uh, and but the majority of the teams on Everest this year are pretty small, under 10. And there's actually 39 teams, separate teams. But again, that's misleading because of the size. It looks like the United States has the no most number of uh, uh, nationals on the mountain with 64. UK comes in at 34. Uh, Nepal, non-Sherpa is at 21. India has 23, which is about a third of what they've been having in the last few years. And it looks like that uh, what I'm being told by um, some friends in India is that uh, people are having trouble getting sponsorship this year. COVID kind of knocked everybody on their back. And so um, in terms of, you know, economic and losing jobs and not having a lot of money to spend. So a lot of people lost the opportunity for sponsorship. Canada comes in at 17, Russia was 17, France 13, China 14, probably most those Chinas are uh, China expats are living outside of China that were able to get in. And Austria comes in at 11. Probably uh, Lucas Frutenbach has uh, Frutenbach has uh, most of those 11 on his team, along with uh, 
Yeah, I guess that's it, because Kerry Coburn's over on Makalu. Nepal has generated a fair amount of money, um, you know, around 3.8, almost $4 million in royalties. And so they're in hard need of, of hard cash. So this is really good for the country of Nepal. And I couldn't be happier for all my friends over there. Okay, so that's it for uh, kind of the weekly news of what's been happening. As always, you know, follow my blog. I, I have multiple updates. I'll probably be increasing it as we get more activities, like with the ropes hitting the summit, the first summits of the season. Uh, we'll also be tracking to see if there's another uh, attempt over on um, on Kanyachunga. Uh, who knows? You might be see some more. Oh, hey, I almost forgot. Carlos, Carlos, my good buddy Carlos, 83 years old. He left base camp on Dalagiri. He left base camp along with, with uh, Sito um, and uh, six Sherpas, and they're climbing the mountain. And God, I'm just so hoping on his 13th attempt for his 13th 8,000 or at 83 years old, a lot of threes there, that's a lucky three. So go, Carlos, climb high, climb safe, and climb on, my friend. Oh my gosh, I'm pulling for you. Hey, at this point in the podcast, I'm going to switch over and talk a little bit about uh, what people might be feeling on the mountain. I call May 1st halftime. And I talked earlier when I opened this thing up about, you know, how important it is. You know, you're kind of in that mid place. And so it's really a time now, if you've made, if you've done your uh, climatization rotations, one or two, or maybe you've got another one coming still, this is a moment. This is a moment where you're stopping and you're really thinking about, you know, what you've done. You know, your body's kind of getting peed up at this point. You're a little tired. Um, you know, sleeping in um, at, at uh, 17,000 feet is just not the same as back home. Uh, even if you use an altitude tent, you're still not getting a restful night sleep. And, you know, I always say that there's five keys to climbing mountains, taking care of your hands, your feet, uh, getting a good night's sleep eating and drinking properly. And sleeping is one of the most important things. So now people are kind of, you know, now they're in the dining tent. And you can imagine what the conversations are like. You know, normally the conversations are all over the map. I always call it this compressed environment where, you know, you, you people talk about politics and religion, two subjects I like to avoid talking about publicly, <laughs> much less, you know, with strangers on the top of the world. And then you talk about, you know, work and family, which is fantastic. But then most people end up gravitating to talking about climbing and inevitably it comes up, they look across the table at you and they say, you think you'll summit? Well, that's always a hard question to answer at May 1st, because, you know, at this point, like I said, your body's starting to get tired. I mean, you're starting to get worn down. You've probably lost a good 10 pounds already in spite of having excellent food. It just happens, you know, at altitude, your body just eats calories. You can burn 10,000 calories a day uh, on some of these rotations, especially doing something really difficult like climbing the Lhotse face or trying to rush through the icefall. You know, so you're burning calories like crazy. It's difficult to replace that many calories difficult to get that much water in your body. So now you're kind of this, this accumulation of all of these impacts are going on. And it actually hits a crescendo when you're at the South Pole getting ready to go to the summit. But by that point, you've lost even more weight. It's been difficult to get calories and, and water on board uh, during the whole process of, of going up to the South Pole. But right now you're still at base camp on May 1st. 
And so all this stuff is going through your head and you're starting to go, you know what? I didn't go as fast as I thought I was going to go uh, through the ice fall or up between camp one and camp two. Maybe I didn't train hard enough. So all these little doubts begin just to enter into you and start picking away. And so it's really critical to maintain a positive uh, viewpoint, a positive frame. And anytime there's an issue, you know, you figure out what that issue is and you resolve it. You know, if you don't feel good, that kumbu cough is starting to kick up on you you know, go to Everest ER, you know, have them check you out. You know, if you need to go on antibiotics for a three-day course of erythromycin, do it. You know, just don't take any risk at this point. It's all about self-care. And also, you typically in a big group, you'll have somebody that's kind of a, a little bit of a naysayer, you know, try to avoid the, that negativity, you know, stay positive, because that's really what's going to get you to the top along with self-care, you know, being a good team member and luck. <laughs> a little bit of good luck with the weather. So, you know, this is the time. It's just to, you know, take it easy, just to relax, renew. If you do go back down the valley to, you know, touch grass and, and breathe in the air, let it go, you know, take it in. If you choose to stay at base camp, you know, just sleep, have their active rest days, keep those red blood cells going, keep that factory manufacturing the red blood cells because uh, pretty soon you're going to need them. So it's an exciting time on Everest. People are literally all over the mountains. They're all over many mountains in Nepal. Uh, but we're at halftime, and let's see how the second half goes. Climb on. This is Alan. And remember, memories are everything.